The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Call Us Definitely edition. We are just past the winter solstice. We are on the verge of a widely celebrated holiday known as Christmas, and that means... It's time for our annual call-in show. I'm joined by Julia Turner, who is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia. Hello. Hey. And uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Steven, hello. I'm here in the studio with Julia just to rub that in. Yeah. (laughs) This is the FOMO episode for Steve Metcalf. (laughs) It's early, fairly early in the day, and yet we are drinking grapefruit juice with Prosecco, and you're not... (sighs) For meet Lauren, man, I am so bereft right now. Well, rub it in. Um, okay, so I think uh, what do we do? We just dive right in, right? No need to stand on ceremony. We got great calls this year. Let's really start. good calls. Yeah, kudos yeah. for the calls. Yeah, we shook the tree and beautiful fruit fell. Uh, let's uh, let's do this. Hi, I am wondering if there is a word that you have come across in the last few years that you have thought, wow, I cannot believe that I didn't know before that that word exists because it's so necessary for our culture to know that word or term. Thanks. What do y'all think? Who wants to start? All right. Mine is a little bit of a cheat because I believe I actually endorsed this word when I discovered it. So taken with it was I and so convinced was I that it was the perfect antidote to our current era. The word is fingerspitzengefühl. (laughs) Fingerspitzengefühl. A German term I'm reading here from Wikipedia, literally meaning fingertips feeling and meaning intuitive flair or instinct which has been adopted by the English language as a loan word. It describes a great situational awareness and the ability to respond most appropriately and tactfully. So I read this word, I believe, in Matt Levine's wonderful money newsletter for Bloomberg, which is just a great thing that I get in my inbox. And it makes me believe that I understand finance during the time which I am reading it. And then I stop reading it and all of the information (laughs) evaporates. But one of the all-time great analytical newsletters, and he used it. And I loved it because we live in an era of data. We live in an era that prizes what the numbers tell you. And I'm very in favor of that. I love data. I love mucking around in a spreadsheet. I love to use signals from audiences and users to understand how something is doing or performing. But also, from years of toiling on the internet and studying all that data, I believe that I have great finger spitzengefühl about <laughs> how and why people respond to things and what they might respond to. And I love the notion of really capturing um, the kind of deep intuitive learning you can do that goes beyond what pure numbers might tell you in our data-driven age. I would agree. I think of the three of us, you have the most finger spitzengefühl. <laughs> would you concur, Steve? <laughs> Oh, my God, by far, yeah. And um, I think someone told me, I think I discussed this with Matt Levine, and the image that he described to me was the farmer um, picking up the soil and sort of running it through their fingers and the notion that you could sort of just intuit something about the fertility of the plot from your fingertips feeling. And it's, it's for an editor in particular. I mean, editorial sensibility seems like nothing if not fingertip yep. fingerful or however many syllables I just Finger added to it. <laughs> right? Because, I mean, you need some hard data. You need to know things like, you know, is this trending? Has it already been written about? Is it something that's been over-talked or under-talked? You need to have some hard numbers in there, but you also just have to have a sense of, you know, whether you have the, the right voice of the person to write on it and, you know, whether you have something to say. Absolutely. Okay, so this leads into my word, though. You have the finger split to <laughs> but do you have sitz, sitzfleisch? Oh, another great one. Probably it's sitzfleisch, right? I don't know. But um, yeah, so you know what that word means. I only learned it very recently. It, it just refers to one's buttocks and the ability to sit on it for periods of time required to produce. I would think writing would be the big one, but art or whatever. It's just kind of the ability to be alone, sitting on your ass and doing the work. And there's a wonderful passage in... Um, a movable feast, which is the you know wonderfully nostalgic retrospective that Hemingway took of his time in Paris as a young man, written as a as a much much older man, um, and in in which he himself talks about that. He said, really, the difference between me and all of these other poseurs who had aggregated from all over the world into Paris during the period I would assume before the war when he got there, um, the difference was sitzfleisch. It was just the literally 
that you could divide all of the that humanity not into the talented and the untalented not at all i mean it was absolutely the division between people who were willing to exit the cafe and the scene and the scene making and just sit on their fucking ass and do it um and i will leave it to others to decide why this is my word i also love in this era of standing desks, we have so much anxiety. You know, you read all these like bo- mm-hmm. bogus, like, oh, remember when we were cavemen and our natural thing was like tramping and tromping and finding berries and hunting. And we weren't just like sitting at desks all day. And that's why you're whatever metabolism, cortisol, blah, blah, you're all fucked up. Um, it's just like, yeah, also everybody fucking died at 30. Like, no, st- enough with the ev- evolutionary biology bullshit. Like, I love the idea of a culture that lionizes the ability to sit on your butt and get something done and prizes mental work as opposed to one that is like, uh, if you're sitting, you're being lazy, you're being stupid, you're just a brain drone. It's like, no, brains are amazing. It's really cool that we can sit down and do stuff with them. Like, let's 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 give a little prize to the sits flesh. Um, and then I also just agree with you completely. Like, just the the more the further along I get in my career as a manager. Obviously, you prize talent, you prize intellect, but the sheer fucking ability to produce mm-hmm. and like yeah. get something done and make something good, it's as important, if not more important, than the other two. So my word, I actually talked about it pretty recently on the show, and I bet maybe one of the two of you can guess what it is. Steve, do you remember this word? You were excited about it when I introduced it, I believe also in an endorsement segment. This has been the year of this word for me, because then I ended up, I learned it this year, we talked about it on the Gap Best, and then I had it in my mind thinking, whenever possible, I'm going to use this in my Wait, writing. Wait, is this the word you used in your Little Women review? Yes. That A.O. Scott praised you for using? <laughs> exactly. And then this... you crowed about remembering? <laughs> yes, exactly. This was a word that when I finally did get to use it in my Little Women review, it got much sort of retweeted and talked about because of the word specifically, because it's such a cool word that it applies to such a specific thing. So the word is poiumenon. It's a, it's a rhetorical term from Greek, and it means a work of art that is about the process of its own making. So, Steve, I think we talked about it in reference to Pale Fire, Nabokov's mm. Pale Fire, which would be mm-hmm. a classical example of a poiumenon, where as you reach the end of the book or the movie or whatever the work of art is, the protagonist, who's also the artist, is just about to start creating it. So it's this kind of snake-eating-its-own-tail phenomenon. And uh, to my delight, Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women is a poiumenon to a much greater degree than the book itself is. I mean, the book is somewhat about... Joe March being Louisa May Alcott and being someone who wants to write. And she does indeed write stories about her family that start to sell over the course of the book. But it doesn't end with a moment when she is watching the production of a book called Little Women by Joe March, which is how the movie ends. And uh, I think that's just such a, a creative and clever way for Gerwig to have changed the ending and also makes it about something that the end of the book isn't quite about, which is the ability to change one's own story. And without spoiling anything, the end of the movie Little Women, the latest adaptation, has this curious debate at the end about whether the ending of Joe March's real life story is the same as the ending of the book that she's written and and leaves that up in the air. I cannot wait to discuss this movie with you. Okay, German, German, and Greek. Those are some good words. Yes, I am calling uh, for the Culture Gap Fest. My name is James. I am a devoted weekly listener. And my question for the call-in show is, I would like to hear each of your top three museums in the world, and why do you like to go there? Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, I've got three, and they, they came came to me instantly, which I think is a good sign. So the first one is uh, probably my favorite museum in the world, is the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. It's going to sound like an arcane choice to some people. To anyone who's been, it's not at all. Almost everyone emerges from it thinking it is the most perfectly designed magnificent you know uh locus of knowledge they've ever been into essentially the museum is designed to telling the entire history of the landmass that is now mexico going back to the very beginning and so it's sort of both a art museum and a natural history museum in one uh the whole thing is is designed with such depth of thought and feeling you walk into this beautiful open plaza which is a um uh, surrounded on all four sides um and is a public space, semi-public space in its own right. So there are school children visiting all the time, uh, running around, and people just kind of hanging out and walking through this sun-filled plaza with an amazing fountain that you can kind of interact with because it's it's kind of draining 
uh, directly into the ground level. The water's not falling in a contained space, uh, as I recall. And then essentially, it's the three or four major epochs of the Mexican landmass. Each has one side of this four-sided open space. And so you can essentially trace the history of human interaction with this piece of earth um going all the way back to the beginning and it tells the story of you know the building of 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 multiple civilizations one after the other each one you know sort of displacing the next um it, it certainly dispels any myth that prior to the arrival of cortez that that there were a bunch of you know peaceful uh people living in perfect harmony with one another it was a history of incredible bloodshed and imperial ambition um, in these various civilizations. But then you get to Cortez and you get the Spanish coming in and just like really the only analogy would be if a gigantic alien spacecraft landed in Washington, D.C. and like took over the earth, wouldn't even do it justice. I mean, essentially, it almost completely obliterated what had come before and completely reoriented our sense of what was real, like like just an, a complete ontological reordering of the entire universe, which included the, both the imposition and the taking on and the passionate taking on of Christianity and one of the more like remarkable acts of, I mean, I, I think it's fair to call it kind of rape and miscegenation that then produces a, a country, right? And it's like what one's relationship to this past should be is incredibly complex because I don't think you can eliminate pride, but I don't think you can eliminate shame. I don't think you can eliminate magnificence or culpability, but it all gets told through these artifacts. It's just one of the most incredible places I've ever been in every respect. You both love being in that courtyard and as a meeting place and gathering place for, you know, contemporary Mexicans, but just the genius of the way that that museum is laid out is remarkable. And lent somewhat less long-windedly, Jody Rosen put us on, I believe put me on to this place in Paris called the Musée de la Chasse et de la Nature, the Museum of Hunting and Nature, which I went to many years ago with my kids and we were all floored. My memory of it is less vivid than my memory of the Anthropology Museum. But it is essentially what it says. It's like sort of a lot of taxidermy, but every presentation is essentially a a highly eccentric um, artwork. It's, I believe, in a sort of Parisian townhouse, essentially. And it it just manages to mix taxidermy with kind of a, a highly collage inflected modern art sensibility in ways that are mind-blowing as i recall it's currently temporarily closed for expansion i think it is regarded as a success like a kind of wildly interesting place to just hang out and have your mind blown um and then the final one would be the clark museum in um Mm, in uh the clark is great yeah williamstown massachusetts julia as you know it's an old it's like a rural frick, right? It's like essentially a robber baron family or whatever, a very wealthy family uh, uh, deeded their provincial estate over to a nonprofit in order to turn it and their art collection into a into a public museum. It's just a wonderfully intimate atmosphere within which to interact very closely with, you know, masterful works both from American and Europe. I mean, principally the European works, as I recall, are uh, impressionistic masters and the American ones are kind of Winslow Homer and Aikens. Um, But there tends to be a wider variety and then they get in exhibitions. Like they had an incredible one on Van Gogh and his relationship to nature. Um, And it's a wonderful place to have lunch. And then it's surrounded by nature trails that I've I've had some of the most beautiful and restorative walks of my life um, in between looking at the art. So those are my three. Oh my gosh. In the course of listening to you talk about those three museums, you reminded me of like 20 other museums. So in addition to the (laughs) the initial three museums that sprang to mind, I now have like 50 museums I want to talk about, which I won't. Dana, what have you got? I don't know. I'm also having trouble narrowing it down. I feel like this is sort of like making a top 10 list where it's like, do you want to recognize a big breadth of museums or do you want to talk about strange, quirky museums that are people might not know about? Because like, for example, I'm not going to cite the Met, right? Even though that is a museum that is basically the one that I visit the most, that probably means the most to me that I've had the most meaningful experiences in. I mean, it's just this temple of art that we're so lucky to live in the same city as. Right. It's like but, endorsing oxygen or something. Yeah, exactly. So I, I have to go down a little bit more of a rabbit hole than that. So I think I'm going to go just super personal, just three museums that I have very intense experiences of visiting multiple times and that in some cases might not be the most obvious ones to visit. Um, 
And yeah, I'm sure in the conversation afterwards, I'll think of many more that I should have included. But my first one would probably be the, the Cluny Museum in Paris, which is one of my just very dear to my heart museums. It's medieval art. Ooh. It's in a 16th century, I think, or 17th century building that I think used to be some sort of chapel or church. It's a gorgeous building, not of the era that the art is of. But that's the great thing about the Cluny Museum is it's so many eras layered onto each other because the site that it's built on, which is just right by the Seine in the in the fifth arrondissement, like when you walk out of it, you can see across the Pont Neuf, you know, you can see Notre Dame, etc., um, is on top of the baths, the Roman baths from when Paris was a Roman settlement. Mm. So part of the museum is that you can go down into these wonderful kind of white stone rooms dug into the ground that that used to be the whatever they were called, the thermarium, or I don't know, you can learn about it when you go there, the hot baths and the cold baths of Rome. And one of the things that's in the cold baths, anachronistically but beautifully, is these heads that were taken off of Notre Dame during the French Revolution when, you know, one of the acts of violence that was visited on the old world of the city is that some of the saints were beheaded by rebels. And uh, and so there's these strange white stone giant heads of saints and, and, you know, Mary and Joseph and things just set up in this room of Roman baths. But that's not all the Cluny Museum has. It's just got stained glass rooms that are completely darkened except for light that glows behind the old stained glass. So you can do a thing you can't do in cathedrals and get right up next to the glass that isn't high up above your head, but just right in front of your face and read all the biblical stories there. You know, it's just full of reliquaries and just tapestries. It has the unicorn, the famous series of unicorn with a lady, lady with the unicorn tapestries. It's just a dazzling museum and fairly small, so you can just have a perfect jewel-like afternoon there and then walk across the Seine um, and do other wonderful things. So Musée de Cluny, that's definitely up there with my three faves. Um, I spent 48 hours in Berlin once. It's the only time I've been to Berlin, and it was a work trip. So 24 of the hours were spent doing movie stuff and interviews and visiting a set and uh, and had really nothing to do with Berlin tourism. But with the remaining 24 hours, I just tirelessly trekked. I just wanted to get in as much Berlin as I possibly could and walked for hours and hours and went into everything that seemed interesting. And the only museum I visited during that 24 hours was the Cinema Museum in Berlin. It's on the Potsdamer Platz in a very historic part of the city, which is right where the wall one of the places where the wall ran through the city and has now been transformed into this very kind of mall-like plaza that I think is owned by Sony. And you wouldn't know that inside this big mall-like plaza is another gem-like museum. It's a, it's a museum of German cinema specifically, although it will have exhibits on, on cinema from around the world. And something I love about this museum is that I, as I experienced it at least, it was sort of Ikea style. So you had to walk through it in a certain order. Um, you couldn't really skip from room to room. I'm not sure if that's true anymore, or if that was even true when I was there, but how it was set up when I was there, which seemed to be pretty much the permanent exhibit, um, was was a kind of tunnel through German cinema history and was just incredibly well put together. One of the things they had, I remember, was a display of Marlena Dietrich's personal effects. So it was, you know, a lot of her costumes and her cigarette cases lined in velvet and, you know, her love letters to various lovers, male and female. And it was just a gorgeous exhibit. And then there was a room full of drawers. There was a room of German history during the war, World War II, that was really dark, but really fascinating. I mean, physically dark and morally and emotionally dark, where you could pull out these drawers and look at things like um, pamphlets, you know, anti-Semitic propaganda pamphlets and posters for all kinds of strange movies made under the Third Reich and also, you know, resistance movies that were secretly made during the Third Reich. And just by pulling out these drawers, see different artifacts of German film history during that time. So that was fantastic. They had a beautiful postcard store where I got so many great postcards from German films. And then they had a cafe called I think called Billy's, named after Billy Wilder, um, that was a, a cinema-themed cafe at the at the bottom of the museum. Just the whole thing was a great experience. So if you go to Berlin, please visit the Cinema Museum on the Potsdamer Platz. And for a last one, just to be a booster, I will be American and talk about the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. Mm, Have you guys been to the I, Barnes? No, I never have. I've been meaning to forever. And I wondered if one of us would name it, so I'm glad you did. It's a weird—I mean, it's. I'm naming it specifically because it— is not like any other museum I've ever been to. And even if you're not in the mood for a museum, you know, sometimes you don't feel like standing in white rooms looking at text next to square things. And that's not what happens at the Barnes Foundation at all. It's this very personalized, idiosyncratic collection that belonged to this one guy who used to display all this work in his house. For a very long time, the Barnes Foundation was at the house of, of Solomon Barnes. And 
after he died, it became impossible. There were so many people visiting that there was nowhere to park and the art couldn't be properly preserved. And essentially, even though I think he had it in his will, there's a whole documentary about this fight. And I don't remember how it all went, but he wanted it all to remain in his house. I think his family did, too. But finally, sort of the art world won out and said, you know, we have to preserve these masterpieces somewhere where they can be seen and where they can be protected. So the space that it's in, while beautiful and modern, is not as idiosyncratic as I think it used to be. And Philadelphians will probably tell you that. But I've only seen it in the new space and I loved it. And among the things that he collected, in addition to, you know, impressionist art and medieval art and early 20th century stuff and really very, very broad taste, was that he loved metal fittings of all kinds and sort of the history of metallurgy. (laughs) And he wanted to hang his works with the metallurgy. And he also was always changing them around, apparently. And his whole idea was to have this shifting display where on the same wall you would see something like, you know, a Byzantine icon next to... Uh, I don't know, a, a Manet still life of flowers. And then underneath that would be a stirrup <laughs> from the 13th century that was all rusty. And uh, the way these things hang is just um, almost like a salon hang, you know, where they cover the walls up very high and very low. And there's no legends on the walls, which makes you look at the art. So if you want to know what the art is, you have to go to these little sort of laminated menus that they keep in each room. And there are plenty of them. If you want to walk around with a little laminated card, you can read on about each work of art and where and when it, it was made and so forth. But it's kind of fun to just wander through and experience things. And then only when you're just desperate to know about a piece do you go and consult what it actually is. It's just it's such a great way to display art. So the Barnes Foundation in Philly is my last one. Oh, my, oh my God. God. I now have a list of 12 in front of yes. me, and I'm going to have to figure out which ones to freaking talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I just want to interject quickly. I've never been to the Barnes. I really want the three of us to go do a um, road trip there, please. All right. I'm going to cheat a little bit, but I promise I'm going to be succinct. Okay. One type of museum that I love is the small, perfect experience that is a blend of art and architecture. In this camp, I would put the Portland Museum of Art in Maine which is structured so that you go to the top floor and you walk down in a circle. You always know where you're supposed to go next, which I love that feeling of a tunnel in a museum where you know exactly what you're supposed to look at in what order and you're being guided through it, sort of the opposite of the barns, I think. Um, and it's got all these beautiful Winslow Homers and Maine Coast things. And then also every so often it's punctuated by a window that makes that lets you look at the actual main coast as though it is a piece of art. And it's just a beautiful blend of architecture and collection. Also in that camp, I would put the Picasso Museum in Paris, which um, is just like a permanent retrospective. And it's so well organized and you really come away feeling like you understand Picasso's career in art. Such a good museum. Yeah. Um, and I also, another one that's dear to my heart, because I worked there for a summer in the costume and textile department, is the RISD Museum, which is just this little mini pocket museum. And because it goes with the Rhode Island School of Design, they literally just have one of everything. They've got like one mummy and one tapestry and one chair from the 18th century and one chair from the 19th century and like one Van Gogh and one this and one that. I'm not actually sure they have a Van Gogh. They have one Brancusi. They've got one that you just can see like it's like a miniature Met. They have literally like one of all the things, and it's a, a, a really darling museum. So little, digestible, beautiful museums, type one. Okay, museum type two, again, cheating, but trying to be brief. If you go to one of the big old greats, find a great guide and hire them. I One of the best art experiences I ever had was having a guided tour of the Prado um, and a guided and guided tours of the Vatican, where when you're confronted with just an overwhelmingly huge and gorgeous collection if you hire a real art history expert to walk with you through show you things create a pathway through it to help you understand the relationship of what you're looking at in the history i mean maybe it's just because i'm so verbal and history focused as a consumer of art but i i really think it's worthwhile to get someone to help guide you through those big places especially if you're you know you're in rome but you're not going to come back necessarily it's, it's I think, a good use of time. And then I'm so interested. I've never been to the uh, Clooney Museum, but the the layers of place is the final category for me. One is the, the biggest revelation of L.A. has been the La Brea Tar Pits, which... Oh, I love them so much. Oh, my God. It's just primordial ooze, like right there in the <laughs> middle of Los Angeles. It's incredible. Um, I always stay right near there when I'm in Los Angeles, in part just because I love walking by those pits. And the other one I will mention just because it's a nice echo back to the Cluny is the Church of San Clemente a Laterano in Rome, which is actually a church, not a museum. But it is very similar. It is the kind of like amazing ancient 
European city takes for granted its ancientness. And it is a church with four layers. There's like an ancient layer where there are kind of ancient Roman aqueducts and a Mithraic temple. And then there's a church from the 400s. And then above that, a basilica from the 1100s. And you just like keep going further and further downstairs into these like weird layers of Roman history. And it's just great. And there's parts of all those structures remaining? Yes. It's just it's just like an onion skin you keep layering in. Ah, we have to move on and have a new question. I could talk about this for 100 hours with you. I didn't even talk about Mass Mocha, which is a great museum for children. This seems like a case to throw it out to people and maybe start a Twitter thread a about Twitter great thread. museums of the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, before we go any further, Dana, I'm assuming we've got some business. What uh, What do you have? Stephen, our sole piece of business today is to tell listeners that in Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about Tom Hooper's Cats, the release of the holiday season that I think has caused the most uh, head scratching, cat scratching, post scratching conversation among uh, critics that I've seen and people on, on Twitter that I've seen. It's an utterly confounding and weird adaptation of the long running Broadway musical. We all saw it this weekend. And after we answer listener questions, we are all going to just stonedly respond to the world-changing experience that is sitting through cats. So to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for T1. So to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can always sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you get 321. For just $35 for your first year, you help cover the cost of producing all of your favorite Slate podcasts. And in return, you get ad-free versions of those shows with weird, strange additions like Julia, Dana, and Steve reacting to cats and many other benefits. So if you want to support the 321. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and all the other shows you love at Slate, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, on with the show. Hello, this is a message for your call-in show from Phil Payne in Perth, Western Australia. About which cultural item or items do you and your partner most enthusiastically agree? And potentially more interesting, about which cultural item or items do you and your partner most vehemently disagree? Keep up the great work. Still the best podcast. Bye. (laughs) Love to hear from Perth. First of all, Australian listeners love them all so dearly. Absolutely. This is an interesting one for me to tackle because I feel like my moral fortitude is proven by the fact that I'm a movie critic who lives with someone who doesn't even get why Vertigo is a great movie. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this is not a thing that we've ever fought about or struggled over, but it was honestly a hard thing for me to accept when it, when it first what's first his revealed. What's his response to Vertigo? Well, I mean, for one thing, He's I think just he like, needs don't to jump. see it. He needs to see it at a great screening and a great print in a theater. So I think you remain, you retain hope. Long. I, I, I feel <laughs> like he has to at least at some point admit that he's wrong for not loving Vertigo and that it is one of those works of art <laughs> about which you can't just sort of, you know, shrug your shoulders and have no feeling. I think that maybe it's just that he resists the overpraised quality of Vertigo and wants to champion other Hitchcock films instead. But yeah, I mean, my partner is a person who I would say, you know, most artistic cultural production type things. There's not even any question that we agree about them because we experience them together and whether or not we love them equally, they're a thing that we're equally vibrant about discussing. But once in a while, one of those dead spots comes along like, wait, you don't get vertigo? And I don't know what his equivalent would be if he was here at a mic saying, wait, you don't get X, you know, and would be curious to know what that would be. Um, But yeah, the thing about my guy is that he is an artist as opposed to a critic. You know, he is someone who makes stuff all day, who thinks about the world as a visual experience much more than I do. Going to museums with him is fantastic because he's so much better at looking than I am. And uh, and later about kind of reconstituting what about that visual experience was worthwhile. In a way, he and a few of my other friends who are great museum goers have kind of taught me to go to museums because I didn't so much grow up going to them. I mean, you know, on school field trips and things like that, or maybe on vacation with my parents, but it wasn't like a family activity that we would go look at art. But it's just, it's very different experiencing art with an artist than with a critic, you know, and I had always before dated people who were essentially critics, somebody who, like me, had sort of an academic analytical eye, who loved art, but who looked at it as a thing to write about and talk about and not to make, you know, not to make and sort of see in the world waiting to be made. And so that's 
such an exciting perspective to me that it doesn't ever really bother me when we don't see eye to eye on the same artistic things. But if, I still do feel that on most important things, I mean, vertigo is important to me, but that on, on most works of art that are meaningful to me, I can bring them to him and not feel that they will be snubbed. That would be a hard experience to have. I also think, though, that it would be a lame experience to have to expect the person that you love to experience everything in the same way and to to always love what you love. And it's it's fine with me that we have some separate aesthetic universes that just revolve in their own spheres and don't don't need to involve each other. Yeah, although my husband is also uh, essentially an editor, right? He he reads things, he makes notes on them, he tries to offer advice on how things might be more effective, but he's working on the making of cultural objects and I'm working on the making of cultural reporting and criticism like that we sort of come at it from a similar cast of mind but different ends of the production and reception standpoint and that can create really fun and productive conversations I would say that for everything we experience that is great or potentially great um, we can enjoyably discuss them the place where we diverge is in our taste in junk TV. So for him, junk TV is like just rewatching endless episodes of Seinfeld, The Simpsons, and Frasier, which I thoroughly enjoy and would participate in. I don't often, but like I, I like all of those things. They're fine. Um, but my junk TV, like Law & Order or Law & Order SVU or Younger, like he cannot feign interest in them. Like he just finds them so dumb and he doesn't find me dumb for enjoying them but he like does not he cannot get caught up in the plot mechanics and the tension and release of that type of show and so sometimes I'll be like oh watch one with me it'll be like so relaxing and cozy to watch together and he just like his I can feel his tense boredom <laughs> next to me and it like totally fucks it up for me because I'm just because it's not that it makes me question my own enjoyment in it but it's just like how can you not just want to know if Mariska is going to solve the case and get the guy to confess like can't you just lose yourself in Law and Order SVU and the answer for him is no and very occasionally that is. Well, it's not even that frustrating. It's just like, okay, well, I don't look for that then in our relationship. Well, I I would say probably the big one is any music that emerges from the rootstock of Bob Dylan, you know, aka like white guy with acoustic guitar um, sharing his self-pity with the wider world is uh, is surprisingly lost <laughs> on my wife. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. I myself pick up an acoustic guitar and do uh, stylings and interpretations of the canon of self-pitying white guys, and that doesn't seem to help. I cannot <laughs> get through to her that songs by Bob Dylan and Van Morrison, Bruce Springsteen, Richard Thompson, Jason Isbell, you know, as, as sung by the love of her life are somehow not um you know great works of art she just it she just rejects it like a like a <laughs> kidney mismatch you know I, it, I will say it is a great joy of my life to have married someone who never fucking tries to play the guitar <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ooh, really dodged a bullet there <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just the shoe fits just so fucking snugly. <laughs> I see. I, like... on the contrary, I would love to have a strummer in the household. I would love to have like a neighbor who played the <laughs> piano. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Oh my god! What's great is that I only get to the point where I can get from the beginning of the song to the end without a major flub after about a thousand tries <laughs> so it's never it's never good right it's never even remotely good but it's like i can kind of get through you know i can get through you know jason isbel's relatively easy after six weeks of work <laughs> and it's just it's driving her mad by the second attempt and i just there is like there's phantom thread like marital sadism going on here <laughs> i'm begging you to intervene so wait, wait so what do you and your lady love share the marriage plot novel ah that's a great one you mean not the novel entitled the marriage plot but oh, the most definitely not <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no um just the great 18th and 19th century 
English novels or, you know, sometimes not English novels, but mostly, you know, just the, the kind of heyday of the novel as the great civilizational art form. You know, can I make a, a joint? West. Can I make a, a couple cultural recommendation for you if you have not done this already? If you guys mm. love novels of marriage and remarriage, you should go on a screwball comedy jag together and watch oh all the God. classics, right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. they're basically 20th too. century yeah. retellings of the same stories. That's the great Stanley Cavell essay, right? That the screwballs were all remarriage plots. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wait, I, that just reminded me of one thing, though, hearing hearing the the guitar. The vertigo of my marriage is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ben, like, watched the first season and was like, yeah. And, like, I can't look at that too hard. <laughs> And I've like thought about trying to make him watch it again, but the thought of having him do his radiating tense boredom at Buffy <laughs> is like, I think I just got to like put it over in a corner and never look at it again. Buffy is your vertigo. Yeah, I love it. Of course. If you could take a single beverage book and record with you into the isolation of a warm, comfortably appointed remote Alpine cabin, what would you bring and why? And what, if anything, do these three things have to do with each other? I have an answer, and the things have nothing to do with one another. I'm just trying to design a pleasant and restful afternoon for myself. I would take a perfectly chilled bottle of a nice Montrachet and Pride and Prejudice and to listen to maybe uh, Red Garland's Red Alone and have a very lovely afternoon. And those three things have really nothing to do with each other, except for that I really freaking love them all. <laughs> and Red Garland was a Steve discovery. Mm, honored. Yeah, you put me yeah. on to him. Um, all right. Well, I would bring uh, a, a single malt. I had, a, you know, someone gave me a Macallan, um, like I think it was a McAllen twenty year old, and I didn't really. I, I always sort of associate McAllen as like a cat, like a Cadillac, like someone from a previous generation thinks it's really fancy, but it's in fact become a byword for sort of cheesy fancy and um, pseudo fancy. And uh, but I don't think I don't think it is. I mean, it's not maybe the most complex scotch I've ever had, but a McAllen twenty is like wowza, is that shit smooth and like. And it just fucking warms you from the, it starts with your, that place where your marrow meets your soul. It just gets the two vibrating and warming up from the inside out. It, it's like amazing. It turns out it's only about $1,800 a bottle. So um, <laughs> it's really, I mean, it is fucking shit expensive. I mean, it is like, forget it. Like, you know, shake the sofa and fucking cash the war bond and get your one bottle and make it last it is but is really good and i would love to have it with me in an alpine cabin to go with that i mean maybe little girl how about little girl blue by nina simone which is just that is it goes to the same place that mccallan does um just that's an amazing record and then a single book I mean, I got to tell you, I'm 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 going through it kind of slow. It doesn't read slow at all, but I'm about a hundred pages into the Bell Jar, and I fucking love it. I love this book so much, and um and my 13 year old daughter recently closed it and looked up and was just like, her her love of Sylvia Plath, that book, and the experience of reading means that this book will be one of my favorite cultural artifacts forever, just from the look on her face after she le read the last word but i'm 100 pages in and i'm so full of adoration for this person who i mistook for a sort of sad doomed lady poet um who's filled with vitalities that i just verbal and and otherwise that i just didn't understand knowing only her by her um her uh stereotypical image but this it's so those are my three I have a comment on Sylvia Plath before I get into mine, Steve, which is that, you know, she herself regarded that book as a juvenilia potboiler yeah. and wanted yeah, nothing to do with this. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just that, I mean, I, I admire the book, too, although I wouldn't say that it's it's the most meaningful interface for me with Sylvia Plath at all. But 
If that is the case, that that book has opened up a new side of her to you, then I would recommend that you read some of her letters and journals, which I think are the greatest thing she ever wrote. And that if it's if you have a feeling of love for her as a person, yes. if you have this yes. feeling of wishing that she had lived longer and that you had known her and that there was more to, to grasp onto of her. I mean, in addition to her, her poetry, obviously, her complete poetry is something to keep on your shelf and crack into at any time. But... You know, get her get her unabridged journals and uh, her letters to her letters home. It's called her letters to her mother, which are incredible. It all just arrived in the mail. I'm giving them to my daughters <laughs> oh, for Christmas. Yes, fantastic! But by giving by giving them to them, I'm actually filching and 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 reading myself. Um, so I love this question because it's all about just the pleasure of, I gather, a limited time in this cabin. It's not a desert island question, right? It's not sort of like you all you get is the cabin. I feel and like these you're just things. planning a really good afternoon. Yeah, that's so sweet. And I love that you don't have to think about like, but what will last me through the lonely years or something like that? You can just design an awesome day for yourself. So I guess I would say we're all bringing alcoholic beverages, which is maybe worrisome, <laughs> especially given that Julie and I are right now drinking at 11 a.m. Uh, but I would take a red wine from the Rhone region and Steve would know more about which one I should bring. I would ask him for advice on which which red wine to bring, like a Chateau mm, of Dupop or a, something. A, a, a coat roti, Dana. Oh, that's right. You love a coat roti. Yes. Okay, so if the listener who, who sent in the, uh, the question is picking up the tab, I'll have a nice bottle of coat roti and I will, for music, I will take box piano partitas played by Andrew Rangel, which I think I've already endorsed on the show. My favorite version of those. I mean, I don't have to bring a book like The Complete Words of Shakespeare or some nourishing thing. I can just bring like a fun afternoon's reading. So uh, I think for my book, I'm going to bring a Gabfest classic. Steve, what is the book that I turned you and your daughters onto? Another thing that, that was the red, what the red garland was for Julia, something that changed you guys reading Experience. I capture the castle. I capture the castle by Dodie Smith. Smith. That Ooh, is just I still such haven't a read pleasurable and joyous book. In a way, it doesn't go with the Alpine cabin setting exactly because it's a springtime book. It takes place in the spring and it talks a lot about flowers and plants and gardens. Um, but it's just it's irretrievably joyful and always fun to return to. And one of those girlhood reading books for me that you can just let it fall open to any page and you're just back in that world again. I like that we all chose uh, female authors. Oh, my gosh. We didn't even try. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so thank you for the Alpine Cabin question. That was a joy male, to answer. Male musicians, though. <laughs> Oops. No, Nina Simone. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Mix, mix bag. This is a question primarily for Dana. Um, a, we often hear uh, sort of the cocktail party game and asking which actor you would want to play you in the movie of your life. Um, I'm curious which director you would pick to direct the movie of your life. Uh, and then bonus point, I'm curious which director you would pick to direct uh, movies for Steve and Julia's lives as well. A question just for me. All right, I'm going to throw it back to you guys at some point, but let me try to get through that Excellent, excellent question first. For Steve, one immediately comes to mind, and I don't know if it's going to mean anything to you, Steve, but I would love to see a version of the Steve Metcalf story directed by Arnaud Desplechins. Have you seen any of his films? No, and I'm bracing myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, the one I She's going to go so obscure we can't tell whether we're being praised or insulted, Steve. (laughs) It's it's her only way out. (laughs) She just made up this French name, this French director. Oh, yes, Arnaud Desplechins. I hope I'm saying his name right. I mean, he's made some movies that you guys have probably seen, although I don't know if he's made one that we've ever talked about before in the Gabfest. But Steve, the one that made me think of you is one of his first movies, at least the breakthrough one in the U.S., which was called My Sex Life or How I Got Into an Argument. Starring Mathieu Amalric, who is, I feel like he's a little bit of a, he's a somewhat Stevian personality in the, in the Gallic cinemasphere. It's so funny and so great. It's sort of a big, sprawling epic about this wonderfully schlemiel grad student who can't finish his dissertation and all of his romantic entanglements. <laughs> And uh, his rivalry with a fellow academic who has a pet monkey. And it's just this great combination <laughs> I've seen, I've of slapstick and romance. You've seen it, right? I, the monkey under the radiator. Dana, <laughs> I hate you so much right Wait, now. Did you hate that movie? I know, but I mean, it's like, how many snugly fitting shoes are we going to ram down my throat in one gap fest? <laughs> I mean, I just feel like actually Steve has somewhat of a, it's not just that he resembles 
a character or a characters in Desplechins, he has a Desplechins-like sensibility in that though his movies, Desplechins movies, tend to be movies of ideas about people who are smart and discuss ideas a lot without being talky. They're also kind of, you know, they, they have a lot of humor and eroticism and breadth of experience, and they are worlds unto themselves, uh, unique worlds. Um, and so I guess that was who sprung to mind for Steve. Um, Julia, wow, a Julia life. I guess because Julia's life seems more thriller-like to me. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, is it, maybe it's like a journalistic thriller of some kind. Maybe Alan J. Pakula could direct your life. <laughs> Pakula for a joint. I love it. <laughs> I mean, Julia just sort of, sort of seems like she's this, she's she's on the move. You know, I can see her just like jumping into a just, cab in Istanbul and having to chase down some guy who's knocking over fruit carts with his motorcycle because he's got a secret <laughs> thumb drive. I'm like a culture drive. editor in Santa Monica. Like, <laughs> yeah, but we've got to make your lives into exciting movies. Come on. Do you agree with me, Steve? I mean, maybe Pakul is not the only one, but somebody who I mean, makes I a tense international so... thriller of some kind. I love it so much. Like... <laughs> Just leave the valise on the park bench. <laughs> I'm just trying to look. Or up. there's also maybe a born identity kind of element in there somewhere. I just I feel like I could see Julia in a trench coat, like in that <laughs> in that Ferris wheel on the Thames, you know, overlooking some sort of <laughs> terrible criminal act taking place far below. <laughs> yeah, it, with total dispassion. Yeah, basically, I'm Julia Stiles in the Bourne movies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say for Julia Zemeckis, you know, workman like makes a lot of money. <laughs> sorry. Fuck you both. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is going to be the question that destroys the gap fest. <laughs> it tore us apart, that director question. I don't, I don't have quite the right director for Julia, but you see the genre that I'm getting at, Steve, right? It's kind of like a tense journalistic thriller, a little bit spotlight style, you know, something that's like got brains, but also heart. And and suspense. All right. I didn't think that my life seemed so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, let me believe in something, Com- please. Compared to ours, we're writers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost can't think of a director static enough to direct my life. It's got to be one. Of, it's got to be like <laughs> Nuri Bilgacelan, like that Turkish director who makes four-hour movies about people, you know, walking through orchards or something. Or, or how about like just like Warhol, who just trained the camera on the <laughs> on uh, the Empire State Building and left it there for. That Except it's mine. me with a with a laptop top petting a dog for four hours. Julia, do you have one for Dana? Well, I have one for Dana, kind of, actually based off of that last comment, which is I could see Frederick Wiseman for Ooh. Dana because there is the thing that that always strikes me about Dana is her attentiveness and the acuteness of her observation and the fact that the observation always comes before the idea or the opinion, which I don't think is true of me. <laughs> I love to have a preconception. I love to change my mind, too. But just Dana, you know, Steve and I like to argue both sides of the coin and Dana likes to come in and just be right. <laughs> I don't know, just the attentive looking, the patient, attentive um, looking part of Dana. I would like that I to look at Dana as well. Oh, like, I would welcome a Wiseman movie, if only because I would get to hang out with Fred Wiseman for multiple hours. That's one half thought. I don't know. What do you think, Steve? Who for Dana? I, w- I would love to see Dana's life reimagined as a uh, Tarantino-esque bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> Just savage, like unremitting acts of dehumanizing violence. You know, Mixed in with like knitting, and <laughs> she's just wearing song. a yellow tracksuit, and then the needles really come into play. <laughs> I, that's just revenge for the previous one. I think it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm opening up a briefcase, and it's glowing. But what's inside it is what's inside my glowing briefcase. Just your laptop screen. <laughs> with your bill, kind of. Yeah, with some deadline I have to meet. <laughs> uh... Hi, Sweet Culture God Fest. My name is Hannah, and I'm a long-term listener. Um, I have a question about your favorite piece of culture, of art, um, that represents the place where you grew up. I grew up in South Dakota, and I no longer live there, but I'm always interested in people's depictions of the Midwest and of that area. So I know Dana is from Texas, Julia is from Boston, and I'm curious what resonates most with you when people ask you where you're from, what piece of cultural art 
do you send them to? Thank you. All right. I have a couple that more or less loosely fall into this category. So the town that I'm from in Texas is San Antonio, which doesn't have a lot of movies set there. Um, But one movie that is all about a voyage to San Antonio and that does culminate in the Alamo is Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is a wonderful (laughs) Tim Burton movie, probably one of my two to three favorite Tim Burton movies um, that that just works in every single way. And it's not exactly about San Antonio, but is a very sweet tribute to it and certainly gives you a good peek at, uh, at different parts of San Antonio. But I think a movie that while watching it, I had this gasping sense of, of recognizing how closely it aligned with aspects of my autobiographical experience was Dazed and Confused, the Linklater movie mm-hmm. about high school, which is in the suburbs of Austin that it takes place. But it looks a lot like the San Antonio suburbs where I grew up. It takes place almost exactly at the time that I was the age of... What would age would I have been? Probably the younger kids, the middle school kids in that movie. Wiley Wiggins. Yeah. At all. Oh, yes. I loved Wiley Wiggins so much. And I felt this, although I was too old to have a middle school crush on him, I felt a retroactive, my middle school self having a crush on, on Wiley Wiggins in that movie. And just that hierarchical world that it, it depicts, the you know football-centric public high school in Texas in the early 80s, late 70s, whenever it is it takes place, was my world. And so it reads to me when I see it, not as a satire or some sort of allegory about high school, but as an actual just a, a high school yearbook blown open. Um, and plus, it's just a, a great, great movie. Maybe Linklater's best. So Dazed and Confused, I think, would be mine. Such a great movie. I just was the age to have a crash on Wiley Wiggins and did. Oh, and also like you. everybody else in that movie, from McConaughey to the men to the women on town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just one of those movies where he cast unknowns and also famous actors. Ben Affleck is maybe at his best ever as O'Banion. <laughs> I forgot about O'Banion, that. <laughs> the paddle-wielding bully from the football team. Um, just so many great character types. I could revisit that movie every single year, and I should. Okay, well, I'm from the um, Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I think the the work of art that I most associate with that particular part of New York City is Franny and Zoe by Salinger. Huh. The Glass family lives on the Upper East Side, and when I read it, I don't know that I could point to any specific word or paragraph or description, but the whole thing is saturated with the feeling of the aura of those incredibly long east-west blocks of the Upper East Side that go from the river to Central Park and uh, what it's like just to walk off of the main arteries and be in a special kind of like hush, you know, urban hush, which is so rare in New York City. Um, And then for the second reason that, you know, I grew up in a run-of-the-mill wasp, Upper East Side wasp family. And so the the idea, just the idea that the Upper East Side of New York might contain this, you know, Jewish vaudevillian, wise child, prodigious, artsy, fucked up, zen-obsessed family, these same blocks, you know, might sequester within them that kind of life, um, you know, struck me as fanciful, but worth believing in that the like Shangri-La of kind of high culture and deep feeling was right there um, also and not worlds and worlds away um, was incredibly powerful to me. So sort of anything that Salinger wrote with the Glass family in it, which includes some short stories and, you know, Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenters, um, but but really especially I feel like by Franny and Zoe. Um, I have drawn a complete and total blank on the culture of Boston, which, sorry, Boston. Come on, Mark Mark Wahlberg. Aerosmith, New Kids on the Block. I mean, like... (laughs) Damon and Affleck, baby. I I did really enjoy the work of, like, the Lemonheads and, you know, Morphine and Juliana Hadfield in the early 90s. I think there's something about growing up in New England and in Boston in particular that you feel like you're growing up in the colonies or something. Like, I felt very connected to... Robert Frost, Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson. Like, I felt like they were of my place and my place, my my literary place or my place of art was New England more than it was Boston proper, um, which may have to do with my education or instinct or inclination. But like, really, I would say I read Little, I'm so excited to talk about the Little Women movie with you guys, having not even seen it yet. But, you know, reading Little Women and and reading about these girls and this bookish girl growing up in Massachusetts. Hello, Slate Culture Gabfest. This is Jim Polini calling from Bethpage, New York. Here's my question. As a, an homage to the terrific review you did of Marriage Story and uh, bouncing off of Dana's comment late in that review, I was wondering if you would all, and my question is, will you be willing 
um, as they did in the movie Marriage Story, to uh, each one of you say what you love about the other co-hosts. Just one thing, something that we don't know by listening to the show. Uh, in the spirit of the holidays, um, I think that would be nice. That's my question. What do you love about your co-hosts? Ah, what a sweet question. I love this question. I hope it is not intended as a prelude to our horrifying divorce. <laughs> I, mean, I will only do this if we all stipulate in advance that this is not part of our divorce proceedings. I'm not going to storm out of the room refusing to say anything. I <laughs> uh, a thing that people should know about Steve Metcalf is that he is just an incredible host. Um, it, we've, we've both had the pleasure of visiting him a few different times up in Ghent. Uh, and the sort of warmth and hospitality and eagerness to show off the bounty of his corner of the world uh, and the solicitousness about what the guest might actually want to do in that corner of the world and the evident community that he's built up there. It's just, I don't know, I feel like Dana and I constantly get emails, not constantly, but every so often we get an email from someone who has just read Steve completely wrong through the show and is like, oh, how do you put up with Steve's sexist deprecations and it's just like who what are you fucking lit like no <laughs> yeah people take him being a long talker as the idea that he's somehow steamrolling us and keeping us from speaking which it is not the case at all yeah wait who's a long talker <laughs> <laughs> um or just I, or the fact that you have strongly held opinions is the fact that you're not just a deep listener to and thinker about our opinions and contributions as well and the the generosity and give of the way that you host the show, which is a really hard task and one that you're so good at and one where you're able to both guide the conversation and be a robust participant in it, like is also so represented in your your hospitality at home. Uh, that is something people should know about Steve. Should I do Dana next or Dana, do you want to do Steve? Uh, I Yeah, yeah, do me, do me. Oh, well, we talk about this sometimes on the show. But I just love Dana's sense of style. I mean, Dana, the, the notion that Dana has had to be taught to see by her artist partner is, it you know, makes me wish I could eavesdrop on those conversations because, of course, Dana, in writing about film, is working with her eye all the time. But I also love the way she works with her eye in, in composing her outfits day by day um, because she never looks like she's following a playbook but they're always interesting. There's always interesting shapes and colors speaking to one another. She's one of the most fun people's outfits to behold that I know. And it's one of the great sadnesses of being across the country is that we don't get to compare outfit notes every week. <laughs> well, the day that I always dress the best is the day I know I'm going to see you. Although today I can't live up to that wearing only a turtleneck jeans and I'm sneakers. wearing like whatever shards of clothes I happen to have <laughs> on this trip. So, yeah, it's, we'll, we'll, we'll meet again one day. <laughs> I, I will take sense of style. That's a great one. For me, the challenge here, I think, is finding something that wouldn't be pretty evident to listeners of the program in a way because I've got copious very sincere and very loving things to say about both of my co-hosts. But I think your average listener probably knows them already. But with Dana, I mean, I have been to Dana's apartment in in Brooklyn a number of times now. It's very good. Look, it's like a place I really like being. And I, 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 I do feel as though when you walk into a person's home, you are walking into the interior of their personality or the exteriorization of their personality in an interior space. And it's uh, it's really lovely. It's very wonderful to be there. What I love about it is that it expresses Dana's easygoing, liberal, artsy sensitivities without giving short shrift to the quality about, about her that I love the most, which is her capacity for scabrous self-loathing. <laughs> And it's like the that to me is just the essence of Dana. It's like the ability to be some sort of magic urban wood nymph, you know, <laughs> who's moving in a sort of ethereal fashion through life without exactly touching its hard surfaces, combined with these canyons of self doubt and <laughs> and self deprecation that wait, completely. <laughs> Put flesh, put flesh and ordinariness or right, intensity of feeling to this person who otherwise is sort of floating through life as the bullets whiz past her head. 
That's my answer. Does that make any I mean, sense? I mean, the, the scabrous self-loathing is a brilliant insight, but I'm just curious how you see that expressed in my home decor. <laughs> it's no, no, no. I guess, I guess that I sort of went at it slightly the wrong way. I, I, what I should say is, I, I love, I love the fact that you, a person capable of those levels of, uh, those recesses of darkness, is yet able to live in the world as you live. Right? It's like there's this incredible equilibrium between you know a, a healthy self-satisfaction and a salutary self-hatred that i think is just an amazing accomplishment for a human being <laughs> to be able to pull off because for most people that's like two broken wings but for dana it somehow is this ability to take flight right? <laughs> or at least uh, yeah flap half-heartedly along <laughs> there you go <laughs> there she is right uh and then Julia, I, really, to me again, it's like it's like these two things, as they balance against one another, are what are, what are wondrous. Which is that the ability to manage people. I mean, and this actually is something that maybe people who listen to the podcast don't know. They they have a sense that you're incredibly competent and and well achieved and purposeful, and you're not a sad sack. You know, sits fleshy writer sitting at home alone, like you know, banging your head against the laptop screen. But I would put a little more specificity to it, which is over time it became clear that you have this totally natural ability to manage other people, which I as 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 I get older, I realize is probably among the hardest things to do, like to go into a room where there are a bunch of competitive egos and clashing personalities and impose an agenda on it without making anyone feel as though their voice was unheard um, or their volition compromised is like a Mozart level art well and, and making to, people feel that they're in on a common enterprise right that that whatever they have to contribute is all part of the same making the whole as good as it can be absolutely and it occasionally means like cutting to the fucking chase and keeping the boat moving i mean it, it's not about handing out a trophy for every finger painting right and it's like balancing those two things is incredible but that's only one of the two marvelous wings of julia turner because the other one is that just that when shit goes down in any one of our personal lives there is no more warm sensitive and empathetic voice to get in your head than julia's i mean i think at the moment where the manager has to cede you know priority to the human being it's just a, an amazing experience to have julia notice that something is going on with you and ask about it and then listen to you so that's what i would say Ah, that's awfully sweet. Oh, man, I'm getting all sniffly and I haven't even gotten to mine yet. <laughs> okay, well, I shouldn't have gone last because you guys scooped me on some of the qualities that I was going to mention, but there are many more behind those. So I guess for Julia's, I will say, and this is pretty evident on the podcast in her response to a lot of the works we talk about, but I'll just talk about it as a person in the world as well. Um, just Julia's sensory uh, response to the world around her and her love of surface in the best sense, her love of color and shape and texture and the way things work and the way things taste and smell. That is just something that when you're moving through the world with Julia, you're always aware of. And then she's always pointing out to you the crispiest croissant at her favorite croissant place or criticizing the way that some particular uh, ergonomic device doesn't work the way it, it's supposed to. I just feel like the physical world to Julia is this very interesting, deeply textured place. I mean, like when you wrote about the signage in, in Penn Station, right? And I've always thought about signage in a different way since then. Julia is oriented toward the outside in a way that's very sensitive. She has big antenna for the outside world. Huh. And that's fun to witness as your friend and colleague. I just have to say that I gave my two uh, brothers-in-law that alarm clock I recommended earlier this year that is just the single best piece of industrial design I have held in my own hands in a decade. And like, just want to reiterate again that this brawn alarm clock is like... You're just making me think about how much pleasure this well-designed object gives me every single fucking day. I'm going on the Endorsomatic and look for I'm it. I'm going to send you guys another link to that. Yeah, when, when Julia points out some sort of technical glitch, then I never cease to notice it. That's the downside. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's the downside. And then I start to just say, this goddamn doorknob, Turner got it right. Um, I'm sending you both alarm clocks for, for Happy New Year's. <laughs> 
As for Steve, I'm going to say a quality that is the opposite of that misperception of Steve that happens sometimes through listeners where people think, oh, because, you know, Steve likes to hold forth on the microphone that he is some sort of bloviating non-listener or non-noticer of things. I will just cite a dinner that I recently had with Steve and some other friends that were all a group of very brilliant, voluble people who like to talk and tell stories and drop names and, you know, weave together anecdotes. And Steve, you talked the least of anyone at the table. And yet I could tell that you were having an absolutely delightful time and that you were just gathering information, you know, thinking about things that you would want to read or things that you would music you would want to listen to based on the conversation that we were having. And I just saw you in this very different mode than how you are on the GabFest, where, of course, you're hosting. So the pressure is on you to talk and be clever and think and make connections. But there were you were making all those connections just quietly and silently weaving them together inside yourself. And at a certain moment, I thought, like, is Steve okay? Because he's not talking much. And then I just looked over at you and you were just so, so happy to be in that company and be having that conversation. And so that side of you is what I would call out. Oh, that's sweet. That was a beautiful night, by the way. Oh, my Lord. It was. All right. Well, that's our call-in show for this year. We don't uh, typically endorse on a call-in show. Nothing different about that this year. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us. We love it when you do. I really mean it. At uh, culturefest at slate.com. You can interact with us on Twitter. That's at Slate Cultfest. That's our feed. Our producer is Katja Kumkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy holidays. We will see you soon. Sit there and count your fingers. What can you do? Sit there, count your little fingers, unhappy little.